Welcome to the Thomas Davis Theatre. I'm a volunteer here at Lieber and I just want to point out my colleague here, Tiernan O'Sullivan, who's also volunteering uh, to assist with the session here. So in terms of housekeeping, um, the fire exit is just at the back of the room there. Uh, there are toilets and water fountains out in the, the lobby area. So just to make sure that everyone is in the, the right place, this is towards open access, keeping up the good work. So at 10.30 we have a coffee break and uh, that's followed then by the keynote speaker in the Edmund Burke Theatre at 11 o'clock. So just two other things I want to, to say. Um, any delegates who did not get a guided tour of the old library um, yesterday, if you show your delegate badge, um, you'll be let in um, to, to visit on a self-guided tour of the old library. And you'll also get a 10% discount in the library shop there. And then anyone who wants to go, uh, who's booked to go on the guide on the tours later this afternoon, the meeting point is 1.45 p.m. Um, in front square, in front of the Campanile. That's great. Thank you. So, good morning, everybody. My name is Anna London, and I come from the National Library of Sweden. And today I'm honored to share this session number 12, Towards Open Access and Keeping Up the Good Work. Uh, sorry, Saskia, we do like that. Um, today we will be listening to presentations on university journals, university presses, and how to redesign libraries around open rather than closed content. And at the end, we will continue the Swedish saga about the cancellation of Elsevier. So you will now get the research perspective, how the researchers at the Royal Institute of Technology in Sweden have coped with the Elsevier um, cancellation. But now let me introduce to you our first speaker of the day, Saskia Waltersin from University of Amsterdam and Leiden uh, University Libraries, who will tell us about a very interesting product, uh, project called University Journals, consolidating institutional repositories in a free open access publication platform. Welcome. So thank you. Um, first, I would like to thank Lieber for the opportunity to present university journals and my co-authors for helping me to put the presentation together. University journals, as I said earlier, will consolidate institutional repositories in the free open access publication platform. Um, it will publish accepted publications um, from the participating institutional repositories and not only articles, but also other research products on a single platform. So, um, indeed, I have been working for the University of Amsterdam. I'm now working at Leiden University. Uh, Leiden University is not involved in this project, but I'm still an advisor um, for, for university journals uh, at the University of Amsterdam. So, I will see, say something about the background, the aims and scope, the organization, the quality assurance, uh, the workflow, the platform, and draw some conclusions. So, the founding father of university journals is Frans Oort. He is a professor of methods and statistics and director of the Research Institute of Child Development and Education at the University of Amsterdam. 
The idea for University Journals started some years ago when he was the head of a working group on academic integrity that advised the executive board. In that period, he got the idea that more types of output, besides articles, also data, reports and software, should be published. But also that more outcomes should be published, for example, also negative results. Negative results is also research done. And the results can be very relevant to others, but will in general not be published by selective and expensive publishers, with as a result a bias in academic publishing and frustration with some researchers that produce these results that publishers in general do not want to publish. It would help good academic practice if works that get no credit at the moment because they are not officially published, would be officially published and could be accessed by everyone. That would make science much more complete and transparent. To make this affordable and efficient, universities should join together and use their current infrastructure to publish all their outputs, open access, and without the need to give their rights to the publishers. As most universities already have repositories in place where they store publications and data, we only need a platform to bring the content of these publications and data in the repositories of all universities together. ORT has published this idea in 2018 in a memorandum called University Journals, you see it on the right. But they had to convince the libraries that university journals would be a good idea for scholars, for scholarly communications, and for the libraries. In May 2019, ORT has been appointed as the Open Science Coordinator at the University of Amsterdam. I will now explain the model in more detail. So the aim and the scope of university journals is to provide academic publishing services close to the university. Collaborative, we set up an alternative publication platform based on our own institutional repositories. The platform complies with Plan S and DORA and will enable uh, publication of all types of research projects and that will be crucial to foster open science. University Journal also has a novel innovative, transparent quality assurance process to which I will come later. By establishing university journals as a publication platform based on institutional repositories, university libraries can be instru instrumental and crucial in achieving the ambitions of open science. So with university journals, we can join together and do something against the publishers of the Capoli and the high publication cost and the slow move to open access and open science and also foster research integrity, so no publication bias and publish sound science. Promote the progress of, sci of science and publish research projects fully and quickly. University Journals is a collaboration of 13 university libraries which are listed on the right. Together they will establish an alternative <coughs> open access publication platform which is governed by partner universities and based on <coughs> institutional repositories. The repositories will be connected to one platform and together we can distribute the tasks. So we will establish a consortium and, uh, by all particip participating organizations and all university partners will be foundation members. All members of the consortium will have voting rights. An executive or a governance board can be elected. The board will make strategic, financial and hiring decisions. The University Journal Governance Board will possibly be senior university staff, researchers and people for strategy, legal, finance and policy affairs. The day-to-day -day management uh, is within the University Journal's team. 
The university journals team will be on the central level to manage the platform, to take care of the operation, the administration, the marketing, and for example, coordinate the technical development. At the local university, editors and administrators will be appointed. Each university can set its own standards. University journal editors and administrators will handle the scholarly and administrative quality assurance, advocacy and engagement. Both quality controllers will handle only material from their own university and institute. New partners may join university journals if they show dedication to the project aims and scope. The board will decide on a request to join, including the financial implications, if any. So at university journals, we can, as a team from the libraries, make open science at the university's work. So university journals will also stimulate open science practices. The aim is to provide a home for all academic output, all research uh, output, reports, data sets, tests, protocols, methods, uh, software and other research products can be published quickly and fully in university journals. These works are often difficult to find, while a description or context can help to appreciate these works when made findable, accessible, interoperable and reusable. The advantage is that all types of publications will be indexed in the same way in established abstract and citation databases by current search engines and copyright and ownership of all research products will remain within the universities. In this way, researchers will also get credits for these works. Also negative results and replication studies can easily be published and credited. And although university journals is a single platform, it will be given the appearance of various digital journals organized by discipline and university. Of course, all publications will receive a DOI and we will try to link related works, for example, a proposal with the articles, the data and the software. It will provide a valuable way of modern scholarly communication as demanded in the transition to open science. Due to a quick and transparent review process for sound science and not novelty or impact, results can be published within a couple of days or weeks. University journals will feature a novel and innovative quality assurance strategy that streamlines submissions, puts researchers in control and aims to deliver fast and predictable publication of all kinds of research products. For full reader transparency, the final published article will show a label to indicate to which quality control or peer review the publication has been subjected. The novel approach helps to mitigate the issues around the sustainability of peer review. The current demand for external unpaid reviewers exceeds supply, so we have a peer review crisis and is putting the system under stress. In addition, journal editors often demand novelty or impact, making publication of replication studies or statistical negative results difficult. So it's also called the reproducibility crisis. To fix this is these issues, University Journals has implemented quality assurance. At base level, all submissions are subjected to rigorous quality assurance checks based on existing best practices and operated by the universities themselves. This gives the universities control over their own publications and provides a firm solution for the peer review crisis by reducing peer review workloads. However, authors that want to have their publications peer reviewed can submit a publication to a traditional peer-reviewed journal 
or make use of a third party that performs the peer review outside university journals. The decision will be left to the author or can be mandated by the university partners. In contrast to traditional journals, university journals will publish all sound research on any topic. There will be no selection on subject, discipline, or how much impact the study is perceived to have. This ensures review is done quickly and the outcome is as predictable as possible. This in contrast with the high rejection rates and the inefficient resubmissions in the lengthy traditional peer review system. The review is based on sound science criteria only <coughs> and not novelty and impact. We will now look on all these aspects and how that will work. This will work. So here we have the workflow. There is a researcher over here. He can put it in the repository or I he can or she can do a direct submission uh, in the university journals. There is uh, a scholar and he is responsible for the quality assurance. And here is the library. They are responsible, responsible for the administrative quality assurance. So is there an abstract? Is there a, the license okay? Is the data deposited? <coughs> and the scholar only looks if the, the, the research is sound science. Then it will be published on the platform. It's over here. And it will get a DOI. Uh, and it will be linked to Google Scholar, Web of Science, etc., etc. You can see that on the right. There will also be a possibility for post-peer review and to provide comments. So, funders increasingly mandate researchers to publish their scientific articles, open access, and to retain their copyrights. Universities all over the world use repositories for preservation and dissemination of academic production of their institutions including scientific articles, datasets, and other research outputs. However, in general, authors do not find the institutional repositories very attractive and accessible as an open access publication platform, since repositories are not a part of the rewarding system. We expect that researchers are more likely to publish and deposit their scientific publications in a repository once they have the appearance, recognition, and dissemination of a scientific journal. The university journal publishing platform is built on journal technology, but is not structured like a traditional journal or a university press. University journals does not have separate journals or books. The platform focuses only on the publication itself. So here's an example of uh, a university journal for the University of Amsterdam. So there will be a sort of logo. <coughs> and now I'm missing some. Yeah, here they are. There will be a link to the repository of the University of Amsterdam, there will be the open reviews, the university branding, and there will be next generation metrics. But there will also be an entry on discipline, so that's more community-based, and for instance here you have the University Journal on Biology. So if you are uh, interested in biology, you get most recent articles on biology in university journals together. So where are we now? In December 2018, we received a starting grant to establish university journals. The group has met uh, a few months ago. There was discussion about the quality control and if it would be sufficient. Most partners informed, uh, informed us that university journals will not be taken seriously by authors without a peer review. There are now going, they are now going out to the researchers in their own organizations to explain the model and to ask if they would be interested to publish in university journals. And if not, what we should change? And if yes, uh, what are the things they really want and which we can improve? 
We are now working on a final plan and a budget, and if agreed on, we will start with the technical developments. A first beta version on the platform is scheduled uh, in June 2020, and the official launch in the autumn. So the advantages for institutions are um, that it is an alternative uh, to the current journal system, and that we collaboratively set up uh, the, that it is collaboratively set up by the university libraries uh, from four European countries. If a scientific paper in a repository is submitted to and accepted by university journals, the article will be automatically transformed into a publication on the new platform. By building on the existing repository infrastructure and publishing expertise of the participating universities, uh, university journals requires only modest resources. University journals will use the existing repositories and establish international journal infrastructure to publish research data, software, and other forms of academic output. Existing university repositories can be used to transfer manuscripts to university journals. So university journals is governed by the participating universities and they will set up their own publishing policies and publish only open access and will be fully compliant with the open access mandates such as Plan S. What is the advantage for authors? University journals provide researchers with a convenient, fast and flexible route towards an indexed journal publication. For authors, university journals aims to provide a high quality, reviewed, open access infrastructure for scholarly articles and other products of research that will bring recognition for several publication types. The university names brings the prestige and there will be no pay to publish no transfer of copyrights and university journal is fully compliant with the current funder open access mandates and the future mandates such as Plan S. And last but not least, the journal format will help to ensure the commitment and acceptance by academic authors. So the conclusions are that um, university journals brings academic publishing <coughs> services close to university with only modest resources and the cost of the common infrastructure can be shared among participating universities and possibly other stakeholders such as national, national funding agencies and governments. University Journals complies with open science ambitions as it enables fast and open dissemination and is granting all research outcomes. Publication will rely on internal quality control while peer review will be voluntary, open and transparent. Management and editorial tasks will be delegated to the libraries. Authors can be open access compliant without a fee, and the journal format will help to ensure the commitment and acceptance by academic authors. With university journals, university libraries can be instru instrumental and crucial in achieving the ambitions of open science. University journals is a practical commitment for implication, implementation from the university libraries and their repositories. It's open science as action level, and there is an open invitation for you to join. Thank you. Thank you so much, Saskia. We have uh, one or two minutes for questions up there. Yes, do I have some help to bring the mic? There are also leaflets for university journals here exactly. on the table. So if you need one. So, Saskia, thank you very much for a really interesting um, presentation. 
Um, I think my question is, how, uh, what are your plans on how to get your authors? Because it's a challenge with this new brand. Um, so, and what kind of authors? Is it younger researchers? Is it everybody from all disciplines? And so how are you really going to get them to engage with your journals and uh, to make this really a thriving? Because yeah. I think the idea is really fantastic, yeah. but I think the real challenge is getting your authors. Yeah, I think the first thing is that we have to remind that it's, it is an, an initi initiative from uh, the researchers themselves. So that's a good starting point, I guess. And also that we are now going to the researchers and ask them, is this something you would like to use? And so one of the replies is that, especially for the other research outputs, they are very interested. Because there is no other way at the moment to, to publish it. So maybe that can also be a very good start. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. We have one more question. Sophie there. Yes. Thank you. I'm Sophie Wenstrom from Stockholm University Press. Um, I have many questions, of course, because I'm really intrigued by this. This is a great suggestion. Um, so I'm going to pick just one. Uh, I was thinking more, um, you say that you will have some kind of internal uh, quality check. Mm -hmm. uh, and there will still be some kind of journal editors, right? Mm -hmm. But so can, can these editors or journals on the platform choose whether or not they want to use peer review uh, at all? Or is that mandatory? The basic is that there is only quality control. So you, you write as a researcher an article. It will be internally within your organization will have the quality assurance check. So if it's sound science. But for instance, if you still want to uh, have it reviewed, you can make use of third-party external uh, peer review services or you can still publish it in a journal if a journal is willing to do that and that can be a peer review journal that's the idea okay thank you very much Saskia we thank will you. move on so now let me introduce Ellen Breen from Dublin City University here in Ireland who is going to talk to us about the establishment of the university press the first fully open access university press in Ireland Welcome, Ellen. Thank you, Anna. Um, just bear with me while I find my slides so I can read the, read the screen. Um, Thanks, Anna. Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm delighted to be here at Lieber and the opportunity have the opportunity to talk to you about the establishment of DCU Press. Ireland's first open access university press. I'm particularly delighted because it's in Dublin, my hometown. Okay, just a little bit about Dublin City University for those of you who may not know. We're based in North Dublin. There are two universities in North Dublin. Dublin City University, we have five faculties, humanities and social sciences, science and health, engineering and computing, our business school and our DCU Institute of Education. Ah, okay. Okay. Apologies. Sorry. I was and I was in this room yesterday. I should have I should have known that. Um, five faculties: so humanities and social sciences, science and health, engineering and computing, our business school, and our DCU Institute of Education. And the DCU Inst Institute of Education was formed in 2016, and that was after three colleges of education um, incorporated into DCU, effectively merged into DCU, and created the first faculty of education in Ireland. We have 17,000 plus students, 
and we have two wonderful libraries and soon to have three, so three main campuses and we'll soon have a third library, a smaller library on our third. So in terms of the structure of today's presentation, I'm going to talk about why we established an open access university press at DCU. I'm going to talk about how we did that, really focusing on the advocacy and engagement with the academic community, particularly our senior management group, and then what that actually looks like in terms of the governance and organisational structure. So in terms of why we developed it, well, and back in 2014, we had a new director, Chris, Christopher Presler, he's now the university librarian at University of Manchester. But Chris strongly believed in the future of, that the future of publishing should be on open platforms and in the university. So he made it a, a kind of key priority in terms of the library strategy at that time. It also, the press supported DCU's core mission, which is to transform lives and societies through education and research, engagement and innovation. And also it's, it aligned with the institutional research goals of DCU, particularly around the advancement of DCU's reputation for world-class research. It also expanded our own library support for and commitment to open access and the open science agenda. Like most university libraries, we established an institutional repository. We have a very successful one. We were the first to have a full collection of e-theses on our institutional repository, and they were mandated way back in 2008. So that was really important to us too. We were developing services, broadening our, our, our services around open scholarship, but particularly to extend around open access as well. And we wanted to innovate being in DCU, and that was part of our culture to be, and libraries in general, to innovate, be part of the evolution of the scholarly publishing landscape, and offer alternatives to our faculty, particularly post the merger, post incorporation, where we had an, an enhanced faculty of humanities and social sciences and a new institute of education. And also our vice president for research was keen to boost funding, publishing op options for um, HSS as well. So that's why. And then also in terms of the why, what, what, in terms of our authors, we wanted to offer that alternative model for our authors and there were clear benefits for them. And I guess in the first instance I'm talking about um, monographs because our focus in the, at the, the, this phase of the establishment of the press is on monographs. So in terms of the benefits to our authors, obviously the immediate, immediately available to a global audience, so free to read and download download by scholars, public bodies, importantly, funders <coughs> as well, but also, really importantly, the general public. So increased visibility and discoverability, so our publications will be discoverable via Google Scholar, the pre our, pre our own press platform, the OAPEN online library, and JSTOR. All press publications will be peer-reviewed and externally, with external, two external peer reviewers. And we have, we'll be offering our authors through our partnership, which I'll talk about in a minute, our service partnership, um, professional support on the editorial design and produ production end of things, which from our conversations with our academic community, they were really keen to see that, that, that part of it as well. And of course, the benefit to our authors is that we won't be charging um, our authors a book processing charge. So for example, if they wanted to make a, a monograph available open access with a traditional <coughs> univer commercial university press that could cost in the region of around 12,000 euro, we won't be charging them anything. So that's significant too. 
So now in terms of the how we did it and focusing on the delivery of the vision of the press. So as I mentioned earlier, it was um, our librarians made it our strategic goal way back in 2014. I guess the conversation was happening between 2014 and 2017, but really the library's focus and indeed the university's focus was on that incorporation process. So whilst conversations were happening, there wasn't a lot of action at that time. Um, in 2017, post our incorporation process, we went from two directorates in the library to four, and our research and teaching directorate was established, and that's, I'm head of that directorate, and to kind of I get, get a sense of where our priorities lay in terms of the development of services in our department and initiatives, we surveyed our academic community across the five faculties, just to get a sense of their priorities. Now, statistically, we only had just under 200 responses, but it was an indication of where we might want to focus in terms of the future and our work. But we did ask a question about the importance of the establishment of a university press for monograph and indeed for journal publishing. And we were really um, delighted to see that there was 50% of the respondents felt it was either very important or important that the university establish um, a platform for monograph publishing. So that was, that was really good. So that obviously went up if you took it by faculty, um, but obviously the numbers go down when we do that. But it was an indication and we were, we were very happy with that. Interestingly, the Institute of Education and our HSS had a very strong interest in terms of the importance of that. Um, I suppose everything really kicked off in 2018 and the momentum, um, things sped up quickly in terms of we set up the DCU Open Science Conference Series. So that, that was in March 2018 and that was a really, really important event for us. We had Paul Eris, the Pro Vice Provost from UCL, who was a keynote speaker and you, you will all know Paul Ayres is actually speaking at another, another session this morning. He's um, the former president of Lieber as well. Um, but he spoke about open science. He spoke about UCL Press and the success of UCL Press. And really importantly <coughs> for, for us, we had our president, Breen McGrath, open that um, conference um, and sit and hear Paul's presentation. It was particularly... Um, yeah, important for us that he was there and, and actually, and he, you know, he even took photographs of some of Paul's slides in relation to, to the downloads and the success of the press. So, and that's actually treated. We also had Dr. Germa Irvine from the Irish Higher Education Authority, who was also co-chair of the National Open Research Forum in Ireland. And it was important, again, that we had her um, speaking at that conference at that time, given the policy um, implications um, and the policy momentum around open access as well. And we also had um, the Director General of the Yeren Young University um, Libraries, or Young European University Libraries Network, and our president is actually on the executive board of, of Yeren as well. So that was really important. So it was just that timing, bringing those people together, the context was really, really important. 
um, for us and in terms of our senior management. And we had lots of senior academics attend that, 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 that conference at that time who then went back to their faculty dean and spoke about the idea of a press and just in, and in general the conversations around open scholarship. So that was important to us. Following on, to, on from that, the library, the kind of library team that were going to be working um, on the press, we had a consultation day with UCL Press and that was with the manager, Lara Spicer, and we had a wonderful day where we just talked through everything around the establishment of a press from a strategic point of view to actually the workflow and the organisational structure around that. So that was really, really um, invaluable to us. We then had meetings with, and Paul Ayres returned to us, and we had meetings with key university partners. So we sat down and we met with our vice president for research, with our director of research, um, and with our the, the Dean of the Faculty of Humanities and Social Sciences, who's going to play a key role in the establishment of the press. So this was, I guess, getting everybody into the room, really kind of, we talked about it, but we really wanted to now put some action onto that and get the important people into the room to talk about how that might happen, and obviously have somebody who had done that and achieved success in that in the room as well. So that was really important to us. We then, after all of that and all of those conversations, and which were invaluable in terms of the feedback, we then produced um, the DCU Press briefing document. And just coming back to those partnerships, at that point, we we decided that it was going to be a joint initiative between the library and our research office. That was really crucial as well. So that was from those meetings that we, we came together and we, we um, pre presented then the briefing document to our senior management group. So that's really important that it was the Office of the Vice President for Research and the Library, a joint initiative. And then in the briefing document was, um, which just focused really on the strategic context, the why we should be doing this, and then the how and the service model and all of that, which I'll, I'll come on to. And then the university absolutely supported that, and a press <coughs> release was issued, and we announced the launch of the press last July. Um, and we announced the partnership with UCL Press, and we're their first um, publishing partner, services partner. Um, so they obviously announced it too. But for us, again, our DCU president, Bree McCraw, he tweeted at the time around it being a milestone for the university. It resonates well, not only with our innovative ethos and commitment to effective research communications, but also with our European partners. So again, when you come back to that seminar, those European partners, that context was all really important um, in bringing um, that forward as well. So the press was announced. So then, just in terms of the publishing, the funding model, in terms of what the press actually looks like, so it's an open access university press online with paid print on demand. Print on demand, the Dean of the Humanities of Faculty, Dean of the Faculty of Humanities and Social Sciences, his eyes lit up when he, he realised we could actually have a physical book as well. That was really important. He talked about having a launch of um, monographs in, in the faculty and just not even having enough print copies at the launch. And so that was, that was really important that, that we were going to offer that to him at that time. And then we announced that we obviously have, we have a publishing services partnership with UCL Press. So what will they provide in terms of that partnership? It's a three-year partnership that we've signed up to. And they'll obviously provide the press platform. So that's really, really important, that technical infrastructure. They, Lara and her team in UCL Press come from a publishing background. So we're 
availing of their expertise, and that's important for us in this evolutionary stage of the press. They'll also provide the editorial and production services, the print on demand, and the online distribution. The elements of costs included in that, um, there's a setup fee, there's an annual charge, and there's a book processing charge. And it's institutionally funded, so our university has committed to funding that, hence the no charge for DCU authors, so it's really important. Now, in terms of the governments and the, ma and, um, the management of the press, and again, this was really important, um, particularly for the academic community to see this. So we've set up a press advisory board. Importantly, it's chaired by our vice president for research and innovation. So, so the advisory board obviously will oversee the strategic direction of the press, have an oversight on all policies, guidelines, and the evaluation processes. We've set up internally in the, in the library the press executive, which is chaired by the university <coughs> librarian. And the, the press exec has responsibility for the management and over opera, operational oversight of the press. And it comprises myself, the um, university librarian, obviously, our, he, our associate director for collection systems and services, our research communications librarian, one of our subject librarians who has a particular interest in publishing, and our acquisitions librarian. So a really important and strong team in terms of the setup and working together across our departments. Um, we also have an editorial committee, and again, really importantly, this came and out of our all our meetings. Um, it's chaired by the Dean of the Faculty of Humanities and Social Science. So it's academic-led in terms of the development of the program of publication that we're getting involved in. And they're responsible, for, obviously, for the evaluation process, the evaluation of proposals, and the management and review process. So in terms of operationally how that looks, um, it's a university press, but it's based in the library and managed through the press executive in collaboration, obviously, with UCL, the UCL press team. It's a new role for the library's research and teaching directorate, and it builds on our existing collaboration with colleagues. I suppose I should say um, the staff in the research director, there's myself, we have the subject librarians and our research communications librarians. So they are, these are the, the people who are out there, who are engaged, who are out there with faculty, who talk to faculty all the time around their publishing options and so forth. So it makes sense that it kind of lives with it within the research directory and, and it deepens our collaborations and partnerships with faculty. It also makes sense because we have a wonderful partnership with our research and innovation office and it extends that as well. And I think what's really interesting is more and more of our work, we're working so, so closely now and it's kind of blurring in terms of what our responsibilities and the responsibilities of the research office, but coming together like this, it just makes it easier in terms of um, our research community that we're on message, we're the same and we can promote each other and the services we offer together and that we're together presenting on so much bibliometrics and other um, research data management and other aspects too but particularly um, this as well and I guess in terms of we haven't defined roles I'm, I'm managing it um, obviously the, through the executive and the university librarian and our other colleagues but we don't have the commissioning editor role at this stage we're obviously just starting those will evolve um, and define so we're, we're playing it um, as we're kind of a team approach at this stage but as I said as things um, ramp up um, things yeah roles roles will evolve so I just this was just a quick one and I, and I 
I know the timing was just in terms of what DCU Press, what we're, our responsibility is. It is on the commissioning, it is on the um, getting those book proposals, <coughs> supporting the editorial committee, the peer review aspect, the approval, um, preparing everything then once a, manuscript, a full manuscript is ready to go, then passing it over to UCL Press in terms of the um, copy editing, those production side of things, um, editorial and production side, the indexing, the publishing and the dissemination, and then back to us for promotion and marketing. In terms of kind of recent and current activities, we've established um, on our initial editorial press, an internal call. We've gone with an internal call in the first instance, um, call for monographs um, in the first instance, and that been, has been sent out by our, by our dean, the chair of the editorial group. We're working on the establishment of operational processes and policies, and we're developing our essential documentation with great support from UCL Press. The platform, the website, is under development and should, will hopefully be available very soon. And we expect our first book. Um, the deadline for those monograph proposals is the end of July, and we would hope that we would have our first book in early 2020. So thank you. Thank you so much for that, Ellen. We will have some time for questions, and they want you to run. <laughs> uh, thank, thank you, Ellen. That was a great presentation. Um, <clears throat> just a couple of questions. Um, I, I get the impression you're, you're focusing on research monographs at this stage. Um, are you intending to... Um, uh, extend that to include maybe textbooks in the yeah. future? Hi, Sheila. Oh, yeah. Sorry, oh. the mic. Hi, Sheila. Yeah, that's a good question and actually interesting in, w in conversations that I had because as soon as the press was announced, we had lots of queries from academics and I did have one actually and met with um, one of our researchers around a textbook. So yes, absolutely. And I certainly UCL Press um, moved quickly into textbooks and which have been hugely successful as well. So yeah, we absolutely plan. I think in the first instance, the, the our dean felt it was really important in establishing the reputation of the press to maybe focus and potentially target experienced researchers. Um, so that kind of makes sense, yeah, but absolutely yeah. you're right. So, um, and, and just a, a, a brief follow-up. Um, so when you do extend to maybe sort of, you know, call for external authors, um, <clears throat> you presumably will be charging them a book processing charge. Do you have any idea yet what that might be? We don't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we don't. But you're right, other um, open access university presses do charge for external authors. But no, we're not at that point yet. Okay, yeah. thank you. Thank you. We have a question down here, too. Uh, my question is rather uh, for uh, uh, the two speakers of the first uh, uh, two talks. Uh, um, my name is Andras Wolf. I'm from Hungarian Academy of Sciences. Do you think that uh, uh, the pendulum swings back towards uh, university publishing? Because in the 19th century, it was natural that uh, all universities, research institutions, uh, published their own output. And in the end of the century and the beginning of the 20th century, it uh, went to commercial publishers. But it seems that it, 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 it's Absolutely. going back. And the other part of the question is, uh, what? How do you see the role of libraries uh, uh, making visible those uh, 
university press outputs. Let Ellen start and then Saskia, you can take the microphone since the question was to both of you. Yeah, as I, as I mentioned, when our director in 2014, that was one of the, re you know, the, he really firmly believed that the future of publishing was in the university to bring, to swing that right back and have that in the university. And in terms of the library's role, um, obviously we're managing the press operationally and it just fits where I think we're, we're look. I think our relationships with academic, it just makes sense that we're there. We're already providing so much support on the publishing side, so it makes sense to extend and, and extend that. Yeah. Yes. Would you like to add something, Saskia? Yes, I can only confirm that it will go back to the... I expect it to go back to the university, and I think we lost control, and we need uh, to gain control back. So, yeah. Thank you very much. Now we will move on to our third topic for the day. And now we're broadening the spectrum a bit and talking about opening up the library, transforming our structures, policies, practices. And it will be presented by Graham Stone from Just Collection and Joanna Bob from Roskilde University Library, but also University of Sussex. Not anymore, no. Just ignore that. Very welcome. Thank you very much. Um, we were we were just saying beforehand the um, the the problems with being speakers on the very last day um, of of the conference. One of the problems is the fear that the seats will all be empty because you had far too good a time. Um, but clearly that's not that's not true. Um, but also when you when you submit your slides a week ahead and realise that you need to change everything that you wrote, um, which we may well, I have a fear we may be doing. Um, but it's also very positive, and I'm really pleased, actually, that we've, we're following on from DCU because there's, there's a bit of a connection, I think, here with, 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 uh, with library presses. Um, apologies for the picture, by the way. This is what happens when you put a random picture as a holder on the front of a PowerPoint, and we, we kept it because we couldn't come up with anything better. Um, so we're, we're going to be changing it slightly, but we're, we're still in that sort of realm of... of um, university presses, library-led, academic-led university presses. Um, so we're going to be talking about really some issues around the library supply chain and, and the provision of, of, of monographs in, in that area and some, some, uh, some thoughts we've got based on a, a number of different things that, that we've been doing. Um, a week or so ago I, I christened 2019 as the year of the open access monograph report. Um, and I've now made a decision. My takeaway from this conference, or one of them, is never to ever talk about another um, open access monograph report again, but actually to do it and start getting on with things because we've got lots of evidence, and, and I think now we, we need to we need to push forward. So on that note, I'm going to talk about a report after, after saying I would never do this again. Um, and really, just to, I guess, just to illustrate where our story begins, which was a, a couple of years ago in a, in a GISC report called uh, Changing Publishing Ecologies, um, which looked at library-led, academic-led presses in the UK, because at that time we had no idea how many there were. Um, and that figure is growing. It's 21 plus, but I know it will probably get to 25 or so by, by the end of maybe this year, next year in, in the UK. And of course, we've got tremendous activity uh, over here in, in Ireland as well. Um, but one of the things that came from that report, um, and, it, and we've popped the quote up there from, from Rupert Gatti, Open Book 
publishers in Cambridge. And Rupert's been publishing monographs, e-books, textbooks for, for 10 years. Um, and it's around the problem that he basically said, well, this is, you know, it's great. I'm, I'm, I've got discovery. Um, people are reading the stuff. We, we, we can show we've got some, some impact. But I really can't get into the library supply chain. As an open access publisher, I'm having real problems to, to, um, to get in, um, not just into the library supply chain, but also onto reading lists and things like that. Um, to a certain extent as well, there was a US report mapping the free ebook supply chain, which said it looked at a different supply chain, but it, it, it purely ebooks, but it really came up with the same thing, which was we've got workflows that are really designed around closed and not open. Um, the amount of, of, of uh, OA content is small and, and sort of difficult to find. There's a lot of lack of awareness. And this really comes back to a certain extent into, uh, you know, into the libraries. So after that report, we took, we took this bit, um, certainly in, in, in JISC in the UK, we, we took it quite seriously because we thought we've, we've, we've found something here that's, that's, that's an issue. Um, and so 12 months ago, we, we got a, a workshop together with this sort of problem statement. Um, so OA publishers have difficulty accessing the channels that library acquisition departments use to buy uh, print and ebook content. Um, it was a really great workshop. Certainly in the UK, it was the first time that we had library-led, academic-led presses, uh, book suppliers. So in the UK, the likes of Dawson's Coots, we had um, metadata suppliers, um, we had, um, had OAPEN, we had a number of people all around the table discussing the issues for the first time. And it was actually incredible uh, that there was lack of awareness all around the table about all the different parts of the supply chain. Um, we came up with four themes from that, um, that workshop. I'm going to completely ignore the first three because the thing that we're really interested in for this paper is the thing around the cultural change that's needed in, in the acquisitions process. Um, interestingly as well, at the same time, the um, scholar-led group were coming up with similar things as well, and there's a, there's a blog post where they talk about problems with the, with the supply chain. Um, so, I don't know whether I'm gonna have rotten fruit, fruit thrown at me for this, because I don't know whether someone should, at JISC, I am a librarian, um, but I don't know whether someone at JISC should, should say this, because I put a big cross next to a library. But when we were talking about this, and, and Joanna um, really was, was, it has been an inspiration behind this, and I don't know whether it's partly down to the reason why she then emigrated um, <laughs> partway through doing this. I, I, we're not sure, she's not told us. Um, but really saying, well, libraries have been absolutely crucial in affecting cultural change with open access within institutions. They've gone out, there's been, uh, you know, countless engagement, Thing, things are really moving and the libraries is central to this. It's been central around the research community. Um, but how good have we been at actually changing within the libraries ourselves? And we're very, we're very focused externally, but how, how, how often do we look internally within, within the library? So we, uh, we were very fortunate um, in, in May to be able to to take this a little bit further, um, and we were invited to run a, a small um, workshop at the National Acquisitions Group um, uh, collection 
Development Day, which has been going now for, for 10 years, um, we had 70, we had 94 people in, in total, and 70 of which were either collection development or acquisitions managers. Um, and we asked them a number of things. It was great to get those practitioners in the room to, to, to discuss the problem. So we talked about, you know, essentially about how, how we need to redesign um, we redesign the workflows, how can we transition and, and, and change um, and really re rethink everything. Now I'm going to do a couple of things and I'm going to hand over to, um, to, to Joanna. Um, so looking at the actual supply chain itself, and again, we, we, we did say, oh, there's, there's a workshop on Wednesday morning and are they going to say everything that we're going to say? Um, and actually some of this did come up on Wednesday, which I found very reassuring that we, we had 70 people in the UK come up with a number of things and we had, what, 28 people on, on Wednesday and there was, sim there was similar stuff. But basically it came around to people were saying, yes, the stu it, it's all around closed licensed content. Um, and again, this, this almost word for word matches what was said Wednesday morning. Um, there's no single place to get um, OA monographs. Um, library supply chain can't deal with zero. Um, you can't have no cost. Um, there's no time. Um, acquisition, certainly from a UK point of view, um, the, the acquisitions teams are looking at one or two areas and there's no time to go off and find all the other stuff. There's no time to go to OAPEN or, or, or whatever. Um, and the information is completely different, and also metadata quality is, is, um, is, is pretty poor, although it's changing, and, and, and we did actually find out on the day um, that uh, there is a move in Mark 21 to bring in an OA field um, that, that, could, that could actually you know, at least indicate something. So very quickly, um, this, this was something that really struck me, and this was a, this was a almost direct quote from some of the feedback we had, um, and then around the culture, everybody offloads everything OA to the OA team. Um, it's almost too specialised. So, so, yeah, and it was, it was really eye-opening. It was kind of, we were thinking this, and then so when, when we, had so, we had someone to say and said, yeah, really, if our department gets in, it's got OA on it, we'll just send it over here. Um, so we then sort of um, brainstormed some, some possible solutions and it's really about the fact that we've got to embed OA in the backroom processes in the library. It, it's, it's, not a, it's not a special thing, it's a thing we do and, and that's you know, something that we really need to, uh, to look at. So we had a look at you know, potentially um, staff, de some staff development is needed. We need to train our acquisitions teams about OA. Um, and also collection development policies, um, something we've done in a couple of same, uh, times is said, have you got a collection management policy in your library, does it include OA in your acquisitions policy? And most people have said, no, we need to go back and look at that, we haven't mentioned acquiring OA content at all. So there's a, a sort of few things that, that came out. I'm going to hand over now to... Uh, to Joanna, who's quickly changing her entire presentation by the side of me. Thank you, Graham. Um, I should say, actually, before I start, that I, I, I don't really speak on behalf of um, the University of Sussex anymore, or, or actually my, uh, my current employer, um, the Royal Danish Library, which might make it sound like I'm about to say something really provocative. 
Um, but as my lovely new boss pointed out to me yesterday, today is actually the last day of my probationary period, so I won't be saying anything <laughs> too <laughs> controversial. Um, okay, so in, in moving away from, um, or moving our focus away from purchased and subscribed content and resources to openly available content, we need to develop a clear um, understanding of the costs and benefits of acquiring, curating, advocating for open content. We know that managing open content isn't free, it isn't, it isn't easy to do, it isn't free, there's a cost attached to it, but we're not able yet to, to quantify that cost. We also, as libraries, need to develop a stance on the kinds of open content, open initiatives and infrastructure that our libraries invest in. Does your library support open infrastructure? Is it clearly articulated within a policy or a framework that enables you to make and justify decisions? For example, if two researchers come to you, one asking for the library to join, or to have membership of Open Library of the Humanities, another one asking you to pledge some money towards Knowledge Unlatched, can you make that decision? Are you able to make that decision and then, and then justify the decision you've made? We need to um, rethink how we measure the value of content. We, it's not easy to see a return on investment from open content. Cost per download doesn't really work, and because it doesn't work, we don't include open resources when we have all those long lists of um, resources that, that we check through to see which are presenting value for money. And so when they're not in those lists, they're invisible to us. What other measures can we use to demonstrate the impact of open content we're making available? And some, I think one of the ideas that came out of your workshop was around citations. I think, Gwen. Which is that my word? And all of this poses some really big questions about what the library budget is for. Is it purely there to purchase resources for teaching and research within our own institutions? Or are we a, making a conscious decision as Sweden did with the Elsevier um, deal, to use our budget strategically to influence the future direction of the scholarly communications market. So, um, Graham mentioned the change in, in culture that's required within the, kind of the acquisitions teams within the library, but I think that that, that shift doesn't only impact um, those teams, but also the ones that engage with our academic communities. So that can be our academic services teams, our subject librarians, or library staff who are working out on our, on our frontline services. We work really closely with our academic communities to make sure that they are making their own outputs um, open access. But are we demonstrating to them the, the value or the benefits for them, actually, in using open educational resources and open content in their teaching, the fact that they can reuse, repurpose content much more easily than they can with closed content? Are we helping them to locate and use open content? Or do we actually assume that um, what we've purchased is somehow of a higher value to, um, to what... Um, to what's actually openly available. And are we promoting our purchase and license content over open just because we know that money has changed hands and we feel we need to justify that? 
And for those of us who are using and implementing um, reading list systems within our libraries, and I can look at the Royal Danish Library when um, I'm talking about this, um, are we using that opportunity to advocate for the inclusion of open content within, within teaching? So I'd like to pick up what Graham has said about culture, because I, I do believe we need a, a, a shift of mindset and culture across our libraries, and that, that as libraries we need to be the ones leading this change. So if we were to start from scratch and redesign our libraries, our workflows, our practices around the assumption that all our content is openly available, what would that look like? What would our structure look like? Open access isn't the responsibility of, of one team, very focused on their external work with the researchers. It needs to permeate across the whole library, and I've spoken to a number of people from different libraries um, at LIBA who are, who are doing this within their own institutions. This involves recasting um, job descriptions, prioritising the management and acquisition of open. Actually, sometimes even just changing what we collect statistics on can have an impact. I certainly know that my um, former team at the University of Sussex, if you gave them, a, you asked them to collect data on something, suddenly the, 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 the numbers would just rise of their own accord because they were so um, competitive with themselves. Um, and we need to um, redefine what a successful library looks like. It's not about the size of our collections or the size of our budgets. And we need to find new measures which demonstrate the impact that we're having on our communities. In the UK, we always fall back on um, our um, expenditure per full-time equivalent student. And we use that as, as a benchmark to, com to compare with each other. But that's really a meaningless figure in a, in a world where content is, is open. And of course, it's much easier if we do this work together. There's um, a role for, this, so this, sorry, this is a call for action to us as individuals, as libraries, but also as a community to embrace the cultural change that's required to rethink our role and our value in an open world. There's a role for us all to engage with external projects, such as the ones mentioned at the, at the bottom of the slide, that address these issues um, and bring together different parties within the scholarly communications industry to ensure that we can integrate open content into our systems, workflows, practices. And I'd argue that there's also a role for LIBA, or bodies such as LIBA, to support libraries to share best practice and experience in this area. So sharing those collection development policies or acquisition policies that prioritise both the acquisition of open content, um, but also that address the investment in open infrastructure. Thank you. Thank you so much, Graham and Joanna. And now we have some time for questions. Yes, Nils Stern over here. Thank you. Yeah, Nils Stern. Um, very happy to see this. Uh, these initiatives. I think it's uh, it's great. Um, follow up on, on, on all the, the reports. Um, I was wondering if you have any good examples of libraries that have actually succeeded, including monographs in their catalogues and all other processes. Do we have a best practice? Yeah. 
I'm, I'm going to walk over here like I'm going to say something really significant, and I think the answer is probably at the moment no. That's what we need. That's the set of the best practices. Um, I, I feel a I feel a, a web page with a list of things coming along. Um, again, is that something Libra could help with? Um, I know there's you know there is there are initiatives. Um, RLUK is looking at this in in the UK. But yeah, we need to, we need to build this. I mean, I remember. It seems a long time ago when I worked in libraries, but um, even writing collection management development policies, and I've had two to do in my previous life, and searching on the web and trying to find them has been difficult. Um, yeah, I think there's something we need to be more open about that. The most of them are open, they're out there, but it's actually sometimes finding them, they're extremely well hidden. But yeah, we need, we need to start building this, I think, and, and, and internationally. Yes, one more question over there, Katta. Yes, thank you, Katta Thorhell from Linnaeus University in Sweden. Um, I get a very strange feeling listening to you. <laughs> I get kicked back to the time when we, when we were listing web pages <laughs> at, at university libraries, important web pages, pages where you can find things. Shouldn't it, it be the other way around? Shouldn't we? Shouldn't we have systems for to to find uh, books, open access books, in another way? Why should they be forced into our library systems? There's something strange about this. I, I, yeah, I think I think one of the issues here is that we've got. I am making this up as I'm going along, so forgive me. But um, discovery um, of of OA ebooks is, is, and I'm, I'm grossly gen generalizing here, but it's relatively easy in that if you get into Directory of Open Access Books, you've done the ticks there for quality, you're then into the library discovery systems, and that's, that works. We say that, but we're also in a world where we accept that the majority of the researchers, certainly in humanities and social sciences, live in a print world and are looking for print. Now, it doesn't matter whether you agree with it or not, that's, that's, the, you know, that's what a lot of stuff comes back. So we've got two systems. Yes, but we have to educate the researchers in humanities. Why, why, should we, why shouldn't we? I mean, that, that's where we should put our help, to, to make them more digital. To, I mean, it, we have a parallel. I was listening to presentation, I think it was in Oxford a few years ago, when they were very concerned about all the digitalization they did and it wasn't found by researchers. They're, I think we are, we, we are moving into a dead end. We must attack these questions in another way. Yeah. I think it's definitely a role for us in terms of um, educating research or educating actually can't educate a researcher, um, working with our researchers, engaging with our researchers to help them find, locate, work with um, open content. But I, I wonder what the role of the library catalogue will be in future when, if we move to, if this shift really does happen and all monographs are open, it's just going to be a, like a museum catalogue. Sorry, apologies to any museum professionals in the room. <laughs> but it's just going to be, it'll be dead. There'll be, it won't be a living, useful... Um, search engine. But that's just my <coughs> personal thoughts. One more question. 
or maybe an, an example of uh, a library here present who's been working with this actively. I'm thinking about uh, a study tour the National Library took to the British Library. So with Torsten Reimers mm. uh, in his department working on everything is open. And I think there's a lot also for the National Libraries to work together mm. to uh, mm. also change the processes. Uh, mm. I recall, Katha, when we talked about uh, how many people in the libraries were working with the print when the e-journals came along and how big part of the budgets for e-journals were spent, but still the major of the staff were working mm. on the print. So I think that's the same maybe transformation we're seeing now. We have to have staff that are actively working with uh, the open access uh, resources in, in a strategic and structural mm. way. Mm. Yes, uh, one more there. Thank you. Hi. Uh, thanks, guys. That was absolutely brilliant. One question, and I'm not sure, sorry, I came in a wee bit late. Like, as a, as a profession, we advocate and advocate and advocate for open. And then we turn around and we publish in journals, or we publish in a print monograph for sale and so on. Do you think we really need to flip our own practice as well? Or is there a balance that we can find between promoting this absolutely quite correctly, but also, I mean, if you said to somebody who brought out a book on librarianship or on some aspect of the profession, mm. they, maybe they haven't thought about it, or maybe it they see it as essential to their own career. And yet sometimes we're, you know, we're talking the talk, but we're not walking the walk. So I just wonder how you feel about that. We agree. Yeah. We, agree. <laughs> we agree, definitely, yeah. yeah. And I'd love to see some of the big, um, big publishers in terms of library information science flip to, um, to the kind of models that we were seeing earlier today. Can, yeah. I, I've been dying to say this in a room full of people Close. for ages, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to. Um, a colleague of mine in the States um, published an article, um, and it was actually on, um, on librarianship and open access, and that if you look at the stats, we are one of the worst disciplines to actually put our stuff out in open access. Um, that she, she went through a whole list of stuff. Most of the journals were behind a paywall, and none of the librarians had put the green version in the repositories. Um, so, yes. And there <laughs> yes. are some really good. There are some really good open access journals, diamond open access journals. You don't have to um, pay APCs for um, to publish in library and information science. Leave Thank you so much. One. Yes. And <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, So now we will move on to uh, No Deal, Sweden cancelled agreement with Elsevier to stand up for open science. So uh, I'm very happy to introduce my Swedish colleagues from the Royal Institute of Technology in Sweden, Göran Hamrin and Cecilia Heimark-Widmark, who will talk about the perspective from the researcher, how they are coping with that. Okay. Good morning, everyone. Uh, can you hear me okay? Yeah, good. So, um, I kind of felt like we're a bit of the black sheep in this session, I'm not sure, but hopefully we can keep up the good work with reporting on the Swedish cancellation of Elsevier. Uh, 
I realised that the title of our presentation doesn't really say that much about its content. Uh, Anna did say a few words, and it's described in the programme, but for those of you who haven't read it in detail, uh, I can just say that what uh, me and my colleague, Joran, wanted to do was to, to look at the consequences of the cancellation for our researchers at KTH. And we wanted to know how it affected their work and how did they feel about the kind of underlying principles that led up to the cancellation. And I hope you all listened to Astrid Soderberg-Witting's excellent keynote yesterday because she explain, explained these really clearly and well. Uh, and yesterday we could also hear Lisa Olsson's very interesting talk on the national survey done on the cancellation. But with this, uh, we, we take a different approach on the institutional level. So, next slide, excuse me. So I, I'm, I'm kind of the background person, so I, I will give a very brief background and bring in some facts on usage and costs uh, on Elsevier material. And then Joran will take over and take <coughs> you through the methodology we used in the study and uh, present the results also. And I really want to give Joran credit for this because it was his idea and he has done all the work as well. <laughs> so very briefly, not to bore you, KTH, Royal Institute of Technology, it's the largest technical university in Sweden. Uh, it's very research intensive. We have about 1,700 active researchers, 70% being men and 30% women, approximately. And we're doing even worse with the professors, where over 80% are men, actually. They're working on this, but still, it's like this. Um, we don't have only have engineering. We also have very successful research groups within uh, the life sciences, for instance, and architecture. And uh, we produce, or yeah, KTH produces, the authors produce about 3,000 research publications peer-reviewed every year. So uh, we do benefit from quite a large number of uh, read and publish agreements, national uh, transformative read and publish agreements in, in Sweden. Um, I think. Uh, the more deals we can offer our researchers, the better, because this gives them more choice in where to publish. And there, you can hear cri criticism, actually, uh, about these agreements, that we direct our researchers or authors to certain publishers by offering these agreements. I really don't agree with this, but it, it can be heard mostly from within libraries. But I think authors rather choose by, by journal than publisher. So, so the, I see it as the, the more publishers we can offer, the better. And again, referring to Astrid Sadebar-Wilding yesterday, uh, we have a new agreement with Spring and Nature for the fully open access uh, journals. And this uh, slide is not uh, updated, so it will be valid from uh, mid-July, 15th of July. And it's quite a breakthrough, actually, as Astrid mentioned, because half of the cost uh, is covered by the Swedish funders. And uh, this is done between, this, 
this was reached uh, through collaboration and communication between different actors or players in, the, in this game. So, uh, yes, I think it's quite interesting. And uh, uh, the deal in itself covers journals like the BMC journals, uh, Nature Communications, Scientific Reports, and we will offer kind of a prepaid flat APC for these journals. Uh, so, but there are other benefits as well, I think, uh, apparent ones probably, but we can, with, with uh, the open access agreements, we have the more transparent and controlled financial flows to the publishers. We avoid the double dipping. Uh, we can offer, you know, a fairer price for the APCs, uh, because the most expensive option is really when the authors buy single APCs from the publishers at list price. And not the least, we, we can lessen the administrative burden for our <coughs> authors. I think this is really important. Uh, and also we can offer kind of hybrid publishing in this plan S compliant publishing in a transitional stage or in these, in, in these times we are in. So this is kind of what uh, the Swedish rectors or vice chancellors or university presidents wanted to reach with Elsevier, this kind of agreement. Uh, and the demands from the Swedish consortium, which Astrid um, also talked about yesterday, uh, were that, well, in short, we wanted immediate open access for all Swedish authors, corresponding authors in the participating institutions, uh, we want a reading rights access to all Elsevier journals and also that it should be a transparent and sustainable price model and not separating these uh, costs for publishing and reading. But as Astrid told us, uh, this was not, such an agreement was not possible last year by July, but now negotiations have been resumed, but uh, by far they are not finished yet. So. I also wanted just briefly to bring in some financial data. Uh, this is for KTH and, and uh, uh, let's see, the bars and the left axis shows what we have paid for uh, reading access to um, Freedom Collection uh, in euros between 2012 and 2018. And the green line on the right axis is the same data but in Swedish kronos. So the green line can actually also show some uh, currency fluctuations. Um, so with this I want to say also, Lisa talked yesterday about, uh, because 2018, this was what we would have paid if we would have had an agreement the whole year. But uh, as you know, we canceled from July 1st, so we only paid half of this cost. Yes, and uh, so as Lisa mentioned yesterday, uh, one question in the national survey was, what did you do with the with, uh, money that you saved? And we have just recently started to cover uh, APC costs with other publishers and with other journals uh, than those covered by the national agreements. I also want to just state the fact that this material is really important for KTH, as you can see from the article downloads, journal article downloads during the same period. Uh, and this will also explain some of the re reactions that Joram will tell you about. 
And finally, uh, I also wanted to show uh, another aspect. These, uh, these are the number of articles uh, uh, ordered by researchers since the cancellation and what we have paid for them in Sweden, no, in US dollars, nearly 80,000 US dollars. And this is document delivery without any, uh, without the library being involved. And uh, during the winter, December to March, unfortunately, we had technical problems, so there was a serious setback. And we also paid more than, or nearly, there were uh, 113,000 euro for hybrid and gold APCs to Elsevier, not administered by the library. So that is also why we really want to reach a sustainable agreement. Uh, and I think also the researchers want this. Joran, yes. the floor is yours. Thank you. Well, the second part of our project uh, was a question which was stated to us to, I think, five years ago, and which has been bugging us, nagging our brains. What would the KTH researchers actually do if we cancel Elsevier? And uh, for this, we conducted some interviews with affected KTH researchers. You see details on the interviews here, and before you all jump up from your seats, we know that there are some weaknesses in the study design here. For example, the convenience sampling used was simply me taking all email responses, uh, screening them for time availability, and also checking their affiliation. Our aim was to make sure that we got uh, researchers from different parts of the research career. We could have performed more interviews since the responses were mainly positive. And please note, when we give quotes here, sometimes they have been translated and edited for clarity. We divided the respondent into three different groups, which roughly reflect their academic capital, which in turn seem to give similarities in responses. We do not claim that these respondents perfectly reflect KTH as a whole. For example, there are more male respondents than average. To the results, whoops. First, this is a big problem. <coughs> this was explicitly expressed by many respondents, sometimes with Swedish profanities, substituted for the word big. And I would love to have the possibility to curse in Swedish during a talk, but unfortunately the chair won't allow me because I don't have time. Uh, but note here that there were most respondents got stuck in a paywall approximately 10 times, but there were actually some people which less, in less than a year had 100 times got stuck in the Elsevier paywall. The f natural follow-up on alternative routes to access, yes. We had the interesting observation that most researchers thought it was okay to wait one hour for document delivery when requesting an article. That shows that the CCC Get It Now service may be well spent money. Concerning other routes, these were seldom used by respondents. A natural explanation for this is the built-in bias contacting people who have made one Elsevier article request. This filters out people who first go to Sci-Hub, for example. 
From quotes like these, uh, we make different observations. First, that different researchers make different choices depending on how important citations are versus economic factors. If readability and fast citations are important, then economy and publication impact come second. But with tight or no budget, then venue becomes important and gold open access is disregarded. On the other hand, it's very interesting that many seniors and some middles literally state that one paper is one million Swedish crowns, which makes open access publishing cost a minor detail. For investigating the respondent's view on Plan S, all respondents were shown the following slide produced by Dr. Schitt. Interestingly enough, few of the respondents had any knowledge of Plan S. But given these principles, most respondents agreed. Then, two natural lines in our questioning were tried to problematize Plan S. First, by showing the funders participating in Plan S, and this actually sparked some interesting discussion when people had money from, for example, Formas and Vinova or other participating funders. The second line was to note that the time frame, which was January 2020 in most interviews, in combination with the last no-hybrid journal principle, that did make some of the respondents protest and consider the plan as unrealistic. Several middles and seniors actually said, well, that probably excludes most of our current publication venues. Here we conclude that Plan S has not been communicated with the scientific community in a good way. Hence, although all the respondents in principle are for the open access of all scientific, non-classified material, we see some differences when it comes to actual open access publishing practice. There are practical arguments both for and against open access at KTH. <coughs> for example, the benefit of publishing open access when working with industry, that was highlighted. Then you can save significant working time if you can freely share your work instead of having to produce a separate detailed technical report for your industry collaborator. The respondents were given some details on the economics uh, regarding the cancellation. We were interested whether the respondents had changed their position on working for Elsevier. Interestingly enough, no such change could be seen when it came to the unpaid work as a reviewer. Most ones remained positive, some remained negative. The stance on working and paid as an author was partly changed, and in particular when the respondent had or were given knowledge on alternative publishers' open access deal with KTH, then you can see some actual or planned changes in the publication practices. And please note that these positions were combined with a majority view that the current payment and profit levels at Elsevier were unacceptably high. It was highly rewarding to see that our two unique selling points, the CCC Get It Now service and that the library pays the open access costs for their publishing, that they were by most respondents greeted with much joy. For many seniors and middles, the chance to both get relieved of the cost as well as the administration of the invoice, that is very attractive. And that gave us a side benefit of our project. We got a chance to spread some knowledge on media costs and publishing support at KTH. 
for this project is as much an information and communication project as a description and analysis project. On the other hand, the question of deal or no deal is just a small portion of the question publish open access or not. And in turn, that question is just a small portion of the critique on the current scientific career model. Several middles noted that being evaluated on secondary impact indicators is counterproductive for good scientific practice and societal improvement. And yes, there have been many impact and ranking hysterics present in recent KTH management. And that is my personal opinion, which is perhaps not shared by my co-author. This was, and I think that this was best expressed by middle number seven, you see Hans quote uh, on the screen, who said that it was vital that highest management supported researchers who started taking bullets for the team by not participating at all in, at all in the current model. And with that last observation, we leave the floor open for questions. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much. So questions for Göran and uh, uh, Cecilia. Oh, you're all fed up with Sweden and Elsevier. Just get on with it now. <laughs> No, any closing comments, feedback, wish us good luck? <laughs> we do actually strive to yeah, strike we, a new deal. <laughs> so no worries with that. Okay, thank you very much for attending this session and I hope you have a nice last day at the Libre conference. Thank you. Really? <laughs> <laughs>